Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston Smith. I'm the headmaster at Bethany Christian School across the street. And uh, I've been asked to preach this morning as Tom and Matt are away. And when you know it, yesterday I wake up and I texted Ryan and I said, my throat feels totally shredded. And so I was having a sore throat and I joked around with him this morning and sent him a text message and said, can't make it. Sorry. Can you find a replacement with 30 minutes to go? <clears throat> but just kidding. But if you would pray that my my voice continues to sustain. I woke up this morning and my wife was like, ooh, very white. But, <clears throat> but no, no, long way from it, trust me. But, uh, but anyway, things seem to be feeling better. And hopefully by mid-sermon, you're not saying, man, I wish his voice would give out. Um, I read a, a pastor who said, you know, he was preaching one day and a guy came up to him at the end of the service and said, man, you're smart. This is in the South. Man, you're smarter than Einstein. And so the pastor left there and all week long he was thinking, man, I'm smarter than Einstein. Why would he say that? Why would he say that? Why would he say that? And so the next Sunday he saw the guy come into the church service and he walked up to him and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this all week. You, last week you came up to me and said, I'm smarter than Einstein. And the guy said, well, yeah, I read once that only 10 people in the world could understand Einstein and ain't nobody understanding you. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully this will communicate. Today, I chose for the passage uh, that we're going to discuss is the Jesus's wilderness temptations. This is where Jesus will go off into the wilderness and he will go head to head against Satan and he is going to be tempted in very strong ways. And it's a precursor to even greater temptations that come. And the whole purpose of this sermon, like his life is so beautiful. When we think of the expression of Christ's love, we think of his death naturally, the greatest expression of love ever shown to mankind. But man, as he walks through this life, his expressions of love for us are extreme. The temptations he faced and the agony that he went through while he was alive is very extraordinary. And so, you know, one of the most powerful things with, that come along with temptation, like Margot talked about, it's, it's taking the easy way and, and the wilderness temptations happen right before he goes and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to tell us to take the narrow path and to enter through the narrow gate. And it was something that he himself knew how to do. One of the most powerful illustrations of sin and temptation I've ever heard, I was watching, a, I can't remember what channel it was, but it was National Geographic or Discovery or something like that. And they talked about a book that had been written 40 or 50 years earlier in which they described how Eskimos would take care of getting rid of the wolves that came against the, the sheep. And they said that they would take a razor-sharp, double-edged blade, and they would stick it into the ground outside of the sheep pen. Don't know if this is true, but anyway, I thought it was fascinating. And they would stick it into the ground outside of the sheep pen after they had covered it with seal's blood and let it freeze and covered it with another layer and another layer and another layer and another layer. And then they would stick it into the ground and inevitably a wolf would come along. And that wolf would catch the scent of this blood and they would go up to the blade and they would be cautious, looking around, wondering, okay, is this really free? 
And then they would take a lick and nothing happened. And they would look again and again and again and again. Before you know it, all the wolves would come out from the forest and all the wolves would be licking passionately at this blade. And they're thinking, a free ride and no consequence. And they would be tasting blood and tasting blood. And before you know it, their tongues would go numb. And they would keep licking and licking and licking. And they would keep tasting blood. And what they failed to recognize is as their tongues grew numb and they kept licking, all the seal blood was gone and now their tongues were hitting that blade and their tongues were being mutilated and they would bleed to death never realizing that they had been wounded. And I thought, man, that is such a powerful illustration of sin. Every time I've ever followed after a temptation, every time that I had ever gone after a sin, you don't realize that it is bringing about your destruction. You think there's no consequence. Why? Because as you enter into it, you grow numb to its effects and you don't even realize that you are drinking your own destruction. Whether it's pornography or whether it's adultery or whether it's addiction, you are drinking your destruction and invariably the wolf pack comes out and they all end up dead. Now, true or not, that's, I think, a very powerful illustration, a vivid illustration, kind of a disturbing illustration for the way that sin works, but it brings destruction. And so the pack always comes out, and we look at Jesus here as He sits in the wilderness. Every man who's ever lived has chased after the blade Every man who'd ever lived before Him had gone after the easy path. And here is Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He doesn't get the luxury like Adam did of having a sinless life and being in a garden where there's luscious fruit and everything is easy. No, He's taken to a wilderness to undergo 40 days of temptation. Matthew chapter 4 Verse 1 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. Of course he's hungry. We tend to look at Jesus in his life and think, well, he's God, of course he can do it. No, he's fully man in addition to being fully God. 40 days of fasting is going to leave him in pain. He's going to know what it feels like to have his stomach acid start eating his own organs. He's going to know the pain that's associated with that, the desperation of just being able to eat. He knows that pain. He's not out there as the Son of God going, I haven't eaten in 40 days, no problem. No, he's hurting. And this whole thing is to set up this narrative so that we understand a few things about Him. And we see some beautiful things about Him. That He is our only hero. That He goes out of His way to suffer just so that He can say to us, I know. I've been there. Your cries to Him don't hit an ear that can't relate. And at the end of all this, Jesus does not take a kingdom without a cross. He recognizes 
that suffering paves the way to immense glory. And just as he walks down that road, he wants us to see that because let me tell you, this life is hard. If it's not one thing over here, it's this thing over here. And you go through this life, whether it's anxiety of work, anxiety of home, whether or not I'm being a good enough dad, whether or not I'm loving those around me, whether or not I'm struggling with a sin, everything is always beating at us. This life is not easy. This is a broken and fallen world. And Jesus is coming to us to give us the hope and the comfort of knowing there is glory down this road of suffering. And the enemy would have you believe different. Why does does it happen this way? Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. The Bible is wanting you to see something. It's wanting you to see Jesus versus all of the people that had gone before him to understand that he's the one true hero. This is deliberately, the Gospel of Matthew, as it's laid out, is setting up for you a progression that is intended, I think, when God orchestrates history, is intended to make you think, that's kind of like Moses, the great figure of the Old Testament. Jesus is walking in his steps, so we see here, at the beginning of his life, next slide, we see at the beginning of his life what happens. You have a maniacal tyrant who's seeking to kill all the babies. Pharaoh throwing them into the Nile or Herod seeking to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. And what do we see? We see that there's midwives who fear God and so they don't kill the Hebrew children. Or there's wise men who fear God and so they don't tell Herod where baby Jesus is. Then you see the baptism where it's called a baptism, where Moses goes through the Red Sea, through the waters. Jesus, Matthew chapter three now comes and he's baptized. Then you get to chapter four and you have the Israelites being led out of Israel by the pillar of fire, which is what the presence and the glory of God and Jesus being led by the spirit into the wilderness tracking. They get into the wilderness and what happens? They begin. After this, they begin to select the 12. So you have Moses beginning to name what the 12 tribes will be and their territories. And you have Jesus who begins to select the 12. Gee, hmm, kind of similar here. Then what happens? They both go up on top of mountains, Matthew chapter 5. And they're going to begin to teach with the authority of God what God expects from his people. And just to top it off, what happens when they're... When Moses is on the mountain, he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Sound familiar? He neither ate bread nor drank water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the word given in stone versus the word presented in flesh. How does Moses do? He fails. When the Israelites go into the wilderness, they fail. They fail at every turn. They're constantly grumbling. They turn to idols. They're going to fail at every available opportunity. And Jesus comes over here saying, he's it. So we went through the Sermon on the Mount. You have Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses is on Mount Sinai... This is how it's described. Thunder, lightning, violent earthquakes, the people begging, please don't let us get near God. 
He's too much. He's too holy. He's too... We are not worthy. Then you see Jesus teaching on a mountain. And he welcomes them. There's no fear, no fright. There's no you can't touch this mountain or you'll die like there was at Mount Sinai. The barriers Jesus has come to remove between man and God. And so here we go on the Sermon on the Mount. Recognize your poverty of spirit. This is so get your checklist. You want to be worthy of heaven. You want to enter on into heaven alone. Here's your checklist. Recognize your poverty of spirit before God. Mourn over your sin. Be meek and humble before God. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be merciful to others. How you doing so far? Seek to become pure in heart. Seek to make peace with God and all others. Be willing to endure persecution for Him. That's just the Beatitudes. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world. Anger toward your brothers equates to murder. Lusting equates to adultery. Your honesty can't be conditioned on oaths. You should be honest all the time. Keep your marital vows. Do not divorce. Do not retaliate against those who wrong you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How you doing? Give to the needy, but give in secret. Pray, but pray in secret. Fast, but fast in secret. Seek only your daily bread. Don't store up treasures in this world. Don't allow your possessions to master you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Don't judge others. Avoid hypocrisy in seeking to instruct others. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. Enter through the narrow gate. Walk along the narrow path. Put all of His words into practice and seek to know God first and foremost. In other words... You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you're seeking to get to heaven, if you're seeking the godly road to do it on your own, that's the standard. Nothing short. Everything else will meet destruction. There is no lesser standard than perfection. But there's only one hero. There's only one person who's walked that road, who's met all of those things, who's met every command that he's laid down. He took up the mantle and met them where we couldn't. There's one hero. Everybody in this room will let you down. I will let my son down at some point in my lifetime. My wife will let our son down. Our pastors will let you down. We are all fallen, broken people. And if you have your eyes fixed on the church as the standard, as the hope, you're missing the point. There is one hero who will never fail you. One. And it's Christ. I have a good friend that I worked with when I was at Westminster Academy. Her son died he took a trip over to Ukraine to actually to go back a slide. He went back, he went to Ukraine to meet his wife and to propose to her. They were going to get married. They'd had a child together. And on his trip over there, he died. And they don't know whether he was murdered or died, but they found him with, with questionable injuries by himself and Laura and I went over to the house, and Laura's been talking with her. Her name's Oksana. And we were talking about heaven and Christ and the hope and that Tony was faithful at Calvary 
and loved the Lord, though he had his stumbles, you know, the hope of heaven of seeing him again. And so she was just so interested in finding out more about this Jesus, this Jesus that can overcome sin and death and who can reunite us together again with him. And so we had this awesome conversation via Skype inside Tony's mom's house. And then we told her, we said, you know, pick up the gospel of John, read Genesis. We'll walk you through it. You have questions, let us know. And so we get an email a few days later and she says, I don't like this Christianity. Why? Well, she loved John. She loved the gospel of John, but she read through the book of Genesis. (laughs) And this is her problem. They're all dirtbags. Adam blames it on his wife. Noah, drunk, passed out naked. Abraham, selling his wife basically to Pharaoh. Isaac does the same with the Abimelech. Jacob, who hates his wife and who schemes his way into everything. The brothers who sell Joseph. Like the whole book is filled with a bunch of, as she said, dirtbags. They have heroic qualities. They do amazing things, but they do some pretty lousy things. And she's looking at this going, this is your holy book? (laughs) Yeah. It's a liberating thing to have our holy book come to us and present us with fallen figures. (laughs) That's a standard we can chase after, right? But the whole point of the Old Testament is to go, is this him? Oh, is this him? Oh. Oh, and you just feel the hopelessness. Every time you think there's a possibility, righteousness is going to be restored. Oh, David, why'd you do that? Solomon. And it's one failed hero after the next. And the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to make us go, where is our salvation? And Bam! When Jesus comes onto the scene, here is somebody who's not only going to restore righteousness and hold up the banner of love and mercy and charity and all the wonderful things of God, but he is going to lay himself down in everything and he'll never fail. Ever. And so the gospel, this is, this is the story of the gospel that Jesus, we tend to think the gospel equals Jesus died on a cross to take my sins. And that's half the equation. That's, that's an enormous part of the equation. But the other significant half of this equation is that Jesus lived a perfect life of full righteousness. And when he's on the cross, he doesn't just take our sin from us and become disgusting and suffer the Father's wrath in our place but he takes off his perfect righteousness that he has lived and he clothes us in it so that when God sees us, he not only sees us empty and rid of our sin, but he sees us in the amazing, positively infinite righteousness of his son. When God sees you, he sees a son or daughter of his own. And so is it important for Christ to live a righteous life? Is it important for Him to go into these temptations and to withstand? Yes! His death is not the only thing necessary for you to get into heaven. His righteousness is as well. Without both, there is no hope for us. 
And so it's, the Bible says this, <coughs> excuse me, for our sake, he was made, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, you get that? In him, we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of God? By saying, that was nice of him to do. Now I'm going to go live the good life. No. You're righteous because you're in him. It's not about what you do. In Thanksgiving, you'll be transformed. But as Martin Lord Jones says, holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It's something we are to do because of what we already are. If you are in Christ, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, He will convict and turn. And if you know Him, if you seek Him, if you see Him for how amazingly beautiful He is, you will not be able to help but become like Him. Our hero chose to share in your sufferings. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. You know, there's a million different ways that if, if, if we could just go and take all of your sufferings, all of your pain, and put them up on the screen. Poverty, Jesus has been there. Homelessness, he's been there. Hunger, he's been there. A spouse who has betrayed you, he's been there. Abused, he's been there. Feeling like God has turned his face from you, he's been there. Walking in a way that he's utterly rejected, he's been there. And here's the incredible thing about Christ. When you look at What's necessary for salvation, what's necessary for the gospel to be true, Jesus had to live a righteous life and he had to die an atoning death. But all the other stuff that prophecy required of him is extra. Why does he do it? Why does Jesus choose to be born in a smelly manger instead of a royal palace? He could have had that life. He could have had the life of ease. And then at the moment of his suffering, laid it all down. Do you want to know why? It's absolutely beautiful. Why would Jesus ordain this hard life from start to finish for himself rather than a life of privilege? It's so that when you are at your wit's end, when you are falling on your knees and face in tears of desperation, you are not talking to a God who doesn't know what you're going through. You're talking to a God who has been where you are and further. You're talking to a God who knows intimately that pain. He knows your tears. He feels your tears. He sympathizes with your tears. And he didn't have to. But he loves you enough to walk that road so that when I cry out, God, where where are you and why have you done this to me? He can say, I've been there. So we get to the temptations, and Satan has three choice temptations. You you see this all the way from the garden. When he comes to Eve, what does he say? Did God really say, did God really say that you can't eat from any garden? And he even expands it, not just the tree of knowledge. He wants everyone, he wants Eve to think God's a tyrant. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? And then he adds to it, surely you will not die. 
Surely God, if he loves you, he won't let you suffer. After all, he just knows that if you walk in my way, you'll be like him. That's always the whisper of the evil one. Did God really say, he won't let you suffer if he loves you? And you will be like God if you walk in my way. So when we get to Matthew 4, the tempter came, first encounter, first temptation. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, what is he saying there? If you're really the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. You've been suffering out here 40 days. You're hungry. I know you've got the gnawing pain. But if you're the Son of God, you're entitled. You shouldn't have to suffer. Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answers, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Satan is tempting Jesus with, and every one of his temptations you'll see. Next slide. In Matthew 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, it says that when the people saw the sign, the, the ability to multiply bread, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world and perceiving then that they were about to come and take him to force, by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's, here's the deal. Jesus, and I challenge you, when Jesus does a miracle, it's never selfish. It's never to take care of my pain. Like Jesus doesn't go, man, I'm hungry. I'll quick make that stone bread. All right, we're good. All right, ready to go on. Like every one of his miracles is focused on others to teach, to serve, to love, to pour out. But you won't find Jesus using his divinity selfishly ever. So here, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, you would be so powerful that people would want to make you king. Satan remembers the day, the reason why Moses got prohibited from going into the promised land. What was it? God comes to him and they are all crying out, we're thirsty, we're thirsty, we're thirsty. And God comes and says, Moses, go speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. In other words, he's going to transform a rock to water. Get it? And what does Moses do? He takes a stick rather than obeying God and he hits it. And then he basically says, look what I have done for you. That's Satan's temptation to Jesus. Show these people your power. You don't have to walk the road of agony. You can become king. Just show them who you are. You don't have to go down the road of suffering, Jesus. Just show them who they are. They will make you king. No, that's not my mission. And so our hero refused the kingdom without a cross. Spurgeon said this, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers on earth. That's a challenging statement and an encouraging statement all at the same time. If you're carrying your crosses and you're grabbing hold of the Lord with the last bit of strength that you have saying, I'm not going to let go of you even though this hurts, even though this is hard your crown in heaven will be wonderful. 
but there's no one who wears the crown in heaven. Jesus says, if you don't pick up your cross and follow after me, you're not worthy of me. Carry your cross. There are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers on earth. So Satan takes him to the next one. We remember his arsenal is, you'll surely not die. You won't suffer. Did God really say? And finally, it's just, you'll be like God. So he gets to the second temptation and the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, here it is again. What is he getting at with Jesus? If you're the Son of God, you would not ever be allowed to suffer because if God really loved you, He wouldn't let you go through this hunger. He wouldn't let you fall to your death. He wouldn't let you go through any kind of hurt and pain. Not if He really loved you. So if you're the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And just like He twisted the Word of God in the beginning, with Adam and Eve, He twists it here by omitting the next part. Psalm 91 is what He's quoting from. Look what He says. This is what the Lord says. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone, there Satan shuts up. Look at the next verse. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Satan didn't want to mention that part. Conveniently. There's two names given to the devil in Scripture. Animal names. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's a serpent. What is promised to the serpent? So the Lord said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. Jesus will crush the serpent's head, and he, you, the serpent, will strike his heel. From the beginning. I mean, I've, I've talked with my students in my class. What kind of promise of salvation is this? Think about it for a minute. Like who starts off saying... I'm going to work the perfect competition. I am going to beat the snot out of you, but you're going to get a really good shot in on me that really wounds me and hurts. Like, who writes that way? Like, who ordains that in the victory, the victor is going to take a wound, a horrible wound? So when he comes quoting Psalm 91, Jesus knows that the victor will trample under his foot the lion and the serpent, but that that serpent will get a wounding in. Satan does not want Jesus to understand that the road to victory comes through wounding. If you're the son of God, you shouldn't have to be wounded. You'll surely not die. God would never let that happen. So the next one, Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And everything he's quoting is from Deuteronomy that Moses writes in the wilderness. Except he's doing it perfectly where Moses failed. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now the gloves are off. There's no pretending anymore. Now it's just straight out. Here it is. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship 
Me, I will make you like God, Jesus, and you don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to suffer. I will give it all to you. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And this life of Jesus's. He knows what a crucifixion looks like. He's seen it. Surely. He's seen what these bodies look like. He knows at least a glimpse of what it's going to be like to have the wrath of God for all of mankind's sin to fall upon him. To have a kingdom without a cross has got to be a huge temptation. I mean, I can have that without that. And Jesus' love for you, every minute that He walked this earth before His cross was an expression of immeasurable love for you because He always chose righteousness. He always chose to lay Himself down in suffering for you. Grace was not an option for him. We have salvation by grace. There's no one perfect. We're, we can't earn our way into heaven, but there's one human being who lived in this life who had no other option but perfect obedience. Have you ever thought, what if Jesus didn't live perfectly? There was no atonement for him. There was no way for him to get right with God again. When he came into this world as a man, he burned the bridges And granted, the story's written and he's secure and God is sovereign. And there's no real chance involved in that. But every moment of Jesus' obedience was absolutely necessary for him and us. And if he had botched it, our salvation is gone. And so then a really interesting verse because... It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And you think to yourself, what in the world is this talking about? Like, I don't remember Satan ever showing up again in the Gospels. I've read him multiple times. He doesn't show up again. Like, where does this happen? Well, the rematch comes in a lot of different places. But if you recognize the voice of Satan, what are Satan's chief weapons? You won't die if God loves you. If you really are the Son of God, if God truly cares about you, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go through anything like that. So let's fast forward and listen in the life of Christ. He goes to His disciples and says to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Hear that. So what does Jesus do? He's like, oh, great, Peter, good. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day to be raised. And what does Peter say? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're the son of God. You can't suffer. I won't let it happen. What does Jesus say? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In the Greek, apiso satanas. Same thing he says to Satan. 
You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me tell you one of the most powerful lies that Satan can implant in his church and his people, the idea of this prosperity gospel, where if God really loved you and your faith was really genuine, then you'd be a millionaire and healthy. Because God doesn't let people he loves suffer. That is from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. It is awful. It is a lie. The satanic whisper is, if God loves you, you should never suffer. You're suffering and therefore God has turned his face from you. Despair. Everybody in this room knows suffering. And everybody in this room, I presume, is precious to God. That is a lie. So the story goes on. Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he falls on his face and he sweats blood and he's crying out and he's in total agony and he still identifies as the Son of God. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Does this look like he's buying into the satanic lie that the life in Jesus comes easy? No, he knows what's coming. He knows that suffering is on the way and he's willing to do it for us. And so he says to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, even the way that this falls out. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I don't want it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, just as happened in the wilderness. He's facing temptation This temptation that Satan had come to him before saying, if you are the son of God, you shouldn't have to suffer. And he rebukes it and says, Father, I'm taking your cup. I don't want to, but I'm going to. And then an angel comes and strengthens him again. And just before this, 10 verses before this, he looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And listen to what he says. And when you have turned again, (laughs) you're going to fail. But when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Be like the angels to me. Go and find them in their misery, in their fallen, in their stumbling, and strengthen them. Encourage them to press on. And so we move on and we get to the trial of Jesus. And what do they want to know? They say to him, are you the son of God then? This is preposterous to them. This guy who is homeless, ragtag disciples. He's, he's been hungry. Everything about his life to them is like, oh, yeah, you're the Messiah. Yeah, right. No privilege. Sure, God would let his son go through your kind of life where you're rejected at every turn. Right. You're the son of God. And he says, you say that I am. And they say, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from our own lips. And so what do they do? They try him and they want him dead. And they think that they're going to prove that Jesus is not the Messiah by forcing him to suffer. If he can't save himself, he's not the Messiah. And Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Suffering the decree of God to his son. 
You know, when Jesus had walked around, how many of you in here have seen The Passion, just out of curiosity? I remember watching that movie and not expecting much from it, and then to being shocked by how graphic it was. And the hardest part of that whole thing for me to watch was the Romans as they put Jesus over on the block and they tied his arms and they began to whip him, which is historically accurate. And they had these cat of nine tails with bone shards and glass and everything else. And as they would rip him, it would shred his skin. And I thought to myself as I was watching that movie, holy cow, like this has got to be gratuitous. Like I can't imagine it being that bad until I read Eusebius and found out that the passion doesn't even do it justice. Eusebius is an ancient historian. He describes this as saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Isaiah says that when our Savior hung upon the cross, that He was marred beyond human recognition. And yet Jesus took every step walking up Calvary for you. When He gets to the cross, we're told that those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Sound familiar? If you are the Son of God, come down from your cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And you imagine, hang on before you move forward. Go back a slide. And I want you to imagine here for a moment. What is Satan up to? Satan, it says that he waited till a more opportune time. There's no other time that Satan emerges. But man, this has a familiar voice. Just like we recognize the voice of our father, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. We need to have ears to recognize the voice of our enemy. These shouts that are being hurled at him. If you are the son of God, come down from your cross. If God really desires you, he wouldn't leave you up here to suffer and rot. There is something very upside down and very beautiful about the gospel. You know what it does? And I've seen it. I've seen when those around me suffer, when they walk through intense affliction and they grab hold of God with everything they have and they love him with everything they have. And despite everything around them crumbling, they find their full sufficiency in him. Holy cow, when I see that, it makes me want God more. It makes me love Him more for loving them so well. So throughout all of Jesus' life, you have people saying, if you're the Son of God, you won't be allowed to suffer. If you're the Son of God, you shouldn't have to endure this humiliation. If you're the Son of God, dot, dot, dot. And the final moment Jesus dies... And he utters a loud cry, and all of his cries from the cross are, Father, forgive them. John, take care of my mom. They're entirely selfless. Into your hands I commit my my spirit. It is finished. And he dies. And it tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, in death and humiliation and shame, in that way that he breathed his last, the centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. It wasn't in the exaltation. It was in the death. You know, I I want to think that as we go through life in this broken world, you are going to have those moments where the the enemy's whisper are going to come to you and say, if God really loved you. You will have such a profound impact on those around you when those moments come. If you grab hold of the Lord and trust that through your tears, God is going to reap a huge harvest. He does. And so we look at our Savior alone, perfect, sorrowful, a life of pain, and one who looked to the cross, to the suffering, and said, I'm going to trust that that road to the cross is ultimately going to land in glory, not only for me, but in my righteousness and in my obedience, I am going to clothe and cover everyone else. And as I sit on my throne in heaven, when the tears and prayers of the saints come to me, I will be able to look at them and know what they are walking through. I will be able to sympathize and love and weep with them. That's our Savior. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your compassionate spirit, the way that that you set your face to the cross, knowing that that wasn't for your benefit. Your salvation was not at risk before you entered this world. Your eternal glory and splendor was not at risk. You came into this world and you suffered and obeyed perfectly for us. You went out of your way to suffer so that you could relate to us. And Father, no matter how many of those whispers came your way, if you are the Son of God, you turned away from them and knew that the Father would bring about glory through suffering. I pray that you would do the same for everyone in this congregation. There's not a person in here that's not walking through some sort of suffering or cross-bearing. And man, that whisper's awful tempting to despair in. If, if God really loved you, Lord, you've shown us how much you love us. And you did it by walking this pathway of, of suffering. And to see you now, Satan tempted you saying, you can have all of this. And to know now that you stand at the right hand of God as king over all creation, with all authority, power, and dominion given to you over all things, your Father's promise (laughs) has put the devil's promise to shame. Help us to share in that faith. In Christ's name, amen.